0: Please turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans, Revelation chapter 14. I keep trying to tell myself this is going to be a good day. I got all the way here this morning and realized I left my notes at home, turned around and went all the way back. be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their, on their harps. for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead an eternal gosp- with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and every tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, "'she who made all nations drink the wine "'of the passion of her sexual immorality.' "'And another angel, a third, followed them, "'saying with a loud voice, "'Anyone who worships the beast and its image "'and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, "'he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, "'poured full strength in the cup of his anger.' And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark on its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and from their, excuse me, for their deeds follow them. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing upon the power of your word upon its light and upon its truth. There is much more here this morning than we can cover today, but help us digest what is presented and help us to understand what is here that we may live for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One of the things that's quite obvious about the book of Revelation that there, John uses multiple visions that he has given through the Holy Spirit and they are all repeated testimony to spiritual warfare. And we've talked about how they, from different points of view, from a heavenly point of view and from an earthly point of view, they talk about the same kind of events or the same kind of histories or the same kind of applications for the people of God. It's not all something that we look forward to but something that we have already seen and are experiencing now. John seems to repeat or review the Lord's message again and again. And you ask, why is Revelation written this way? Well, frankly, he is giving, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, testimony of multiple witnesses. Witnesses. The Old Testament Mosaic law taught Israel on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Old Testament law stipified a minimum of two or three witnesses in order to bring any charge against anyone Our Lord himself even borrowed or leaned upon that law in the New Testament when we talked about church discipline, disciplining one another. If someone, if you find a fault or offense in someone, go to them personally, verify whether it is true or not, if you've seen it or heard it. If they do, if it is true and they do not repent, then go away and come back with a witness or two. Matthew 18:16 If he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses So John is borrowing on that same principle that same idea that same effect His message and his visions are given to us in threes and sevens perfection and completion in order that they might be acceptable as though they were coming from God, we, can be, we, we, are, we are assured that this is His Word, His will, His purpose, His glory. It is to assure us that the book of Revelation is from God. The enemy can try to break down or defeat or destroy the message and the mission, but the testimony of Revelation shall stand. If you're a church historian, if you've ever church, studied church history, you probably know that Revelation was what, the last book to be accepted into the canon, the completed list of books that are considered holy writ. But I believe, I am convinced, that it belongs there, as divinely inspired words of God. So this morning we're going to look at three points from our text First, assurance for the redeemed. Second, assurance of judgment. And third, be assured there will be no escape for the lost. There's going to be some encouragement here. There's going to be some you better wake up moments here as well. As Revelation began with a firm admonition to seven churches in Asia and moved quickly to the vision of heaven's throne room in chapter 4, and the lamb of god seated on the throne this was a glorious beautiful vision and the lamb was there in order to take action to reveal his authority his authority to judge the world you remember a, a scroll a sealed scroll sealed with seven seals was presented and people began to weep because no one had the authority to help break those seals to see what that scroll read, said. And then the lamb came to the throne. Worthy is the lamb. So he is there to take judgment. He is there to present judgment. He is there to, to explain judgment. There are some people today who You've probably heard it. We hear it all the time. When you try and talk to someone about their sinful condition, presenting the gospel, they very often come back with, judge not that you be not judged. That's one of the most abused verses in the Bible. But we realize that God, the Lord Jesus, is on the throne and he has the authority to judge No longer is anyone able to use that as a deflection. They're going to have to stand before him and receive judgment. Never again will anyone have an excuse to remain in their sin. All those who do not repent, all those who refuse to believe, shall be condemned. It's not good news. Between Revelation 4 and 14... We've seen several cycles of visions from John representing God's judgment and his promise of eternal safety for his chosen. There have been cycles, God talking about judgment and God talking about protection for his chosen, for his saints, for his believers, for his children. We most recently looked at the beast and the false prophet, frightening images taking control of the world, but now... In chapter 14, we have assurance for the redeemed. This is our first point. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Some look at this and begin to assume I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Some look at this and begin to assume that God's going to rule on earth, on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem. But we've already seen in Revelation that the Lamb was seated in heaven. We will see later in Revelation, John's vision of the city of God coming down from heaven. So we need to understand that when he is talking about Mount Zion, he is talking about a spiritual mountain, a spiritual city, a spiritual place that is eternal in the heavens, that is greater than Jerusalem. The real estate that is Jerusalem, the real estate that is Israel only casts a small shadow in God's plan for redemption. its I mean, it's pretty much done. It's pretty much over. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 22, it says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, even the author of Hebrews understood That all of this hope, all of this promise that we see in Revelation points us to glorious eternal life. And very much of it is taking place in this moment, right now. Again, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard the voice of the heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. Some people struggle with this chapter, verse verse two of this chapter. I'm not sure which, I've been reading from the ESV, some of you might have A translation that says, I heard a sound, the word in the Greek is phone, which really is what we get sound from. Phonograph, phone, telephone, it's from the Greek. For the translators to interpret this as voice is probably just trying to borrow from the context I don't know that it matters much. I think it sounds it's it's more of a sound than it is a voice. From heaven, I heard a voice or a sound like the roar of many waters. Many of you have been in in large crowds, whether it's been a a sports stadium, an arena, where people are just cheering. If you listen to the whole group together, it does sound like rushing water. And then it describes like the sound of loud thunder. A few months ago a storm came through and just right down the street someone's tree in their backyard was struck. It was perhaps 100, 150 yards away but the boom scared the dickens out of my dog. she ran up the stairs as quick as lightning and into her little hidey hole in the dark part of our closet a sound like roaring water that starts suddenly like a thou- loud thunder but then we kind of struggle with this because we see this words these words was like the sound of harpists playing their harps John is using some things to describe one declaration, one expression of great eternal victory. A lot of people get the idea in their heads that, oh, when we get to heaven, we become these little cherubs with little white wings and are nice and chubby and we're playing harps. Please, I don't want to go. That's a bad interpretation, an artist's bad interpretation of what heaven is all about. Verse 2 says, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. How do we all blend that together? Here is a shout of glory from the people that begins as quick and as loud as thunder. It is so sudden and its spirit so powerful. You feel it in your heart. And you know it is victorious. And you know it is a glad shout. And it is sweet. Like sweet music. That's what he's describing here. That is the assurance we have that we are of the redeemed, that we can look forward to that day when we can shout with the saints of glory and rejoice with salvation we have in the Lamb. Verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. When you study the word of God, you know that Moses and Israel sang a song of victory after the defeat of Pharaoh's armies. That's recorded in Exodus 15, or at least the lyrics are. We don't know what the tune was. Deborah. Deborah. The prophetess Deborah, the judge Deborah, wrote a song after the defeat of Jabin, the king of Canaan, in Judges 5. We have the words there. We don't know what the tune was. So we know this idea that John is giving us, these people, these saints in glory, all of the people redeemed by the Lamb are able to sing a divinely inspired song that only they know. they get first right to sing the song to give praise to God for their salvation I want to take a quick moment to talk a bit about what kind of people comprise the totality of the saints of God there are three sub points we get from scripture those who have devoted themselves to God those who know the Lord and follow him and such saints are considered first fruits in verse 4, the Bible says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with the women, for they are virgins. We want to be careful here because it gives us the idea, or, suggest, or some have suggested, that everyone should be celibate if they're going to be holy. That even if we're married, we're not as good as we could be if we weren't that's not what this is teaching Deuteronomy 23 and 1st Samuel 21 the mosaic law required that men preparing for battle were to maintain ceremonial purity that's what i believe it's talking about you get ready for war the old testament soldiers the old testament men who were called to battle would refrain from relationships with their wives for a time temporarily the apostle paul in 1 corinthians 7 even suggests that there are times when we fast and pray we should refrain from one another for a season but don't let it go too long We are devoting ourselves to the Lord in this life, and we too are engaged in spiritual warfare. We should be faithful to what we are called to be. Faithful to one another, faithful to Him, faithful to our families, faithful to our spouses. First Thessalonians four three. I, I could spend all morning here, but I'm not. I'm just. Hoping you can fill in the blanks yourselves. First, First Thessalonians four three says, "This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality." In other words, the same word for this is your sanctification. The same word for sanctification is the same word we get the word holiness from. And the same word we get immorality from is the same word we get pornography from. So we as Christians should refrain from any kind of sexual perversion that does not belong in our lives. If we're going to be numbered with the saints, we have to keep ourselves lack of a better word ceremonially pure and you can do that if you are married those who have devoted themselves to God individual believers individual there are many individual believers who have been faithful to God and devoted themselves to him but there are many who have not I need to ask the question: Has the church been a faithful bride? And the question, the evidence is there that the church perhaps has not been so faithful. Again, I can spend all morning around this subject, but let me just move quickly. Talk a bit about abortion, because I think it's related. I read an art. It was a 95-page 90, report sponsored by uh, Lifeway and put together by CareNet. So there are a lot of dynamics that go on in this. But to sum up, quoting from the report, the church has connections with many women who choose abortion. CareNet research found in the survey. Of 138 women who have had abortions, 70% claim a Christian religious preference and 43% report attending church monthly or more than, or monthly or more at the time of an abortion. So about four or five out of every 10 women who have an abortion profess to be Christians. Christians. I have been very grateful that there have been people who stand on the battle line protesting in front of abortion clinics. I am glad that people have tried to reach out to those women who are seeking to get that kind of service taken care of. But I've never really had a peace or had a conviction that I should be there because my biggest problem is that abortion is a symptom and a consequence of a greater problem. The church has failed to preach and teach the truth of God and failed to relay relay the wisdom of God that God has given for living a blessed life within our families and with our churches. The church has failed to preach and teach faithfulness to God. So abortion is a consequence. It's because people are worshiping Baal. and not the Lord Jesus they're worshiping the things of this world and not the holiness of God an abortion does not solve anyone's problem it exacerbates it so if we're going to declare ourselves devoted to God and we need to, as Christians, not have ourselves defiled through sexual perversion. It's not just with women. For, we need to be ceremonially righteous in all that we do for the Lord. We need to be faithful to God's word. We need to make a declaration, each and every one of us, I will love and respect my Lord, I will love and respect his word, and I will love and respect my family. That's what we need to do. What kind of people have assurance of eternal life? Those who have devoted themselves to God, and next, those who know the Lord and follow him. Revelation 14 says, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And our Lord Jesus Christ declared Himself as the great shepherd. In John ten twenty seven. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you know the voice of the Lord? Are you following Him? If you are wandering away from His camp, if you are wandering away from the church, If you're not faithful to the church, can you really say you're following him? If you don't know his bride, which spiritually is your mother, can you really say you're within the family of God? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Oh, let the word of God convict the heart that wanders away from him. What kind of people have assurance of eternal life? Those who have devoted themselves to God and those who know the Lord and follow him. They know his voice. And finally, Revelation, our final subpoint: Revelation 14, tells us such saints are considered firstfruits. The latter half of verse 4 and then verse 5, these have been redeemed for mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie has was found, for they are blameless. Scripture describes Christ's resurrection as our first fruits, and here he is talking about the saints of God as first fruits. The first fruit concept or the first fruit idea in Old Testament times in an agricultural society was that the first fruits of the season were the choicest, the very best, the cleanest. And I can imagine that if you're growing all of your food, I mean, every home and every family had a farm or a garden or a field, they would grow their own food. We don't do that here. We can go anywhere we want to and purchase it off a shelf. But they would have to work in season and store up what they grew and what they harvested. And by the time the season was over and they had the food in the pantry, or as the English say, in the larder, they would have to portion that out to make it last through the winter and through the first spring planting and growing until the next harvest. And by the time that first harvest comes in for the new season, the new year, their stores were getting low. Yes, first fruits. We can eat. We will live. That's the kind of idea... The excitement, the refreshment that God's spirit gives his people. Considered to be first fruits for God and the Lamb. It says here, in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. How in the world can you and I be considered blameless? If you remember our study in the book of Romans a few years ago, please remember once more. That in him, faith in him, there is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. In Romans 8, chapter 30, in Romans 8, verse 32, the Bible says, He who did not spare his Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sounds like Paul has written part of Revelation. That if we are the first fruits of Christ for God and we are standing as though we are righteousness because we were aware his righteousness he has taken our sin upon himself and he has given us his righteousness we are blameless before the judge of this universe the judge of all creation and nothing can separate us from his love that is his doing that is not ours That is his provision. It is not our works. So we have the assurance in Christ for the redeemed. It is here in Revelation. Next we have the assurance of judgment. Verse 6. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second following saying fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. John saw the vision of another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And you might say, oh boy, the gospel is good news of salvation, and it is. But part of the gospel is to give the lost a very clear message of their sin. No one can receive the gospel no one can be saved until they know what they're being saved from. God's judgment is a good thing, and God's judgment is a terrible thing. When we think about earthly trials and earthly judges. When the guilty criminal stands before the earthly judge, you would expect the judge to administer judgment appropriately. We're always irritated, we're always frustrated when we hear about a judge who's let a criminal out free because of some little technicality. There are no technicalities in the eyes of God. All has sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no not one. We are all guilty. We have an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And part of that is letting the world know of their sinful condition and the coming wrath and judgment of God. And it can only be done in the power of the spirit. It cannot be done in self-righteous arrogance. In verse 7. This angel said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. This is why I believe what is going on here is that God's judgment is being proclaimed. And it is a good thing and it is a terrible thing. Many of you remember the story of Joshua. Joshua leading Israel across the Jordan. To the city of Jericho, they defeated Jericho. Before they went into Jericho, the Lord told them, Do not take any the people are not are not permitted to take any of the spoils. You are only to keep the gold and the silver for the treasury of the Lord. No one is to take anything personally, but one man did. His name was Achan. He took something of his something that he lusted after, something that he desired, and he kept it secret. And when they went to the next town, the next city, Ai, they were defeated. And through God's providence, Joshua tried to pray before the Lord, how could we have been defeated? And the Lord, through his providence, directed them to this man named Achan. In Joshua seven nineteen. Joshua said to Achan, My son. Give glory to God, to the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me how, tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. The Lord had already told anyone, told Joshua that anyone who disobeyed his word about taking the spoils of the city of Jericho would be stoned to death. And Joshua said, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise. Achan, God has already shown that you are guilty. It is righteous and just that you have been found guilty. Give him praise for he is a righteous God. He is a holy God. He is your God. Part of the gospel is telling the lost that they are sinners worthy of God's wrath. When I stand before the Lord God in heaven, I know that I am guilty beyond any shadow of a doubt. I have no defense whatsoever. I must rely upon my Lord and my Savior. I stand guilty and he has every right to send me to hell. But only by his grace, only by his mercy, have I any hope at all. So we have assurance for the redeemed. We have assurance of judgment. Those who are lost, those who are in rebellion against God will be judged. No one will be set free unless they are under the grace and mercy of the Lord. And finally, we, will be, we should be assured that there, no one will escape the lost. There will be no escape for the lost. Be assured there will be no escape for the lost. Verse 9, another angel, a third, followed, him, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Some people misunderstand and think that hell is a place that is just away from God. But if God is omnipresent, if he is everywhere at all times, this confirms that teaching. That even in hell, God's presence is known because it is his judgment it is not satan exercising judgment satan is among those being judged he will be tormented in fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark his name we in Christ have eternal life and eternal rest and eternal peace all those who are lost have you could call it eternal death our soul is eternal it must live somewhere there will be no annihilation and all of those in hell will be there forever forever without respite, without relief, without hope. Twice in Revelation so far, we see that in chapters 9 and in chapter 16, the lost who are under the eternal wrath of God refuse to repent. You would think that someone would be sorry once they started suffering the consequences of their sin, but they are so full of pride and anger and rage that they refuse to repent. Revelation sixteen nine reads, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plaques, over these plagues, that they did not repent or give him glory. Allow me very quickly, and I'm almost done, to return to Hebrews 12. I read again verses 22 through 24, and then I want to read verse 25. You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of us all, and to the spirits of righteousness, Of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We've already read that before, talking about the saints of glory, and it sounds like, again, this author of Hebrews in chapter 12, much like Paul in chapter 8 of Romans, is writing something that sounds like it could be a footnote to Revelation. And then in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them of, earth, of wrath, warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. We must not refuse the word of God, or we're lost. Very quickly, we'll close the last two verses of our reading from Revelation 13, 12 and 13, chapters 14. Here is the call for an endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors For their deeds follow them. We who are faithful to the Lord. Who devote our lives to him. Are assured of salvation. And we are assured of eternal rest. And eternal peace. And that is something. We are free to rejoice over. That is why we come on Sunday morning. That is part of our heritage in Christ Jesus. So let us together fear God and give him glory. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word and its power and its truth. And we pray that as your spirit applies these lessons to our hearts and to our minds, may we understand the clarity and the light of your truth as we seek to understand what revelation has for us. Help us this day to give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let us continue to worship this morning as through.